Have you ever noticed that you don't run into many people who name their children Judas? There's something about that name that just is connected to everything that is the opposite of what we hope our children will be. Now, you know, history is replete with all kinds of people who have betrayed others, have been traitors. And, uh, and you can find lists of these people on the Internet and they'll, you know, they'll talk to you about you know, various people and from whatever country you're in. The, you know, the, the traitors go higher or lower depending on the, betraying your country. In this country, we know we probably think of Benedict Arnold as the guy that, you know, we, we think is a, the synonym for traitor. But in every one of those lists of historic people who have betrayed their country, their comrades, even their own families, number one on all of those historic lists is Judas Iscariot. And we have come to, to so identify Judas with betrayal that the very name conjures up those images for us and creates an atmosphere where we don't want to put that on our children. And when we come to Luke 22, he talks to us about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. You can't really understand Luke 22 until you understand the context, which of course includes the whole book, but at least to go back to chapter 19 where we find the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Up to this point, Jesus has spent very little time in Jerusalem. And his, his reason for that, he says, is because his time has not come yet. Jerusalem's the hotbed of political, revolutionary activity, and it's not, he's not ready to get into all of that stuff yet. And so appearances he makes are very brief and then he's back out. But when, it comes, when he comes to Palm Sunday, he says to his disciples as they make their way to Jerusalem, my time has now come. And he, walks into, he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and is praised by the people and the religious leaders are upset with them and he rebukes them. And then he goes to the temple and clears it out and that doesn't set too well with them. And they want to engage him in arguments and he embarrasses them again and again. And he tells parables that condemn them. And it's no wonder that they are ready to get him. It's always seemed ironic to me that the the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders are plotting murder. And yet here they are. And Jesus knows that. And I suspect the disciples know that. And certainly Judas Knows that. It's interesting to me that Judas isn't approached by the religious people. They don't pick up some kind of traitor vibe in him and say, yeah, let's take him. He's probably the one we're looking for. Luke tells us that Judas goes to them. And the question in our minds is why? Why why does Judas go to the religious leaders? What is it? What is it in his heart? What's going on in his life that would, would cause him to make that decision? Well, Luke's brief explanation is Satan entered him. And of course, all the evil in the world is about what Satan is doing. Satan is always underlying all of the evil that goes on in the world. And certainly he is the one that prompts Judas to do this. But the reality is Satan cannot enter Judas unless Judas allows him to do so. Unless Judas makes the decision to want that to happen. So 
So the next step is, what is it that Satan uses to convince Judas to take this step? There are all kinds of theories about that. One, of the, one theory is that it's an ideological decision. That um, Judas is, is, like what the other disciples believes, that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom on earth, on earth. And he's going, to, he's going to set up his kingdom here. And his, the main point of that, he's going to destroy the Romans and he's going to set up Israel as a nation like it was once again in his glory days. The disciples think that even after the resurrection. In Acts 1.6, they, they say to Jesus, are you going to now restore your kingdom here on earth? And if they are still wrestling with that after the resurrection, you know they're wrestling with it before the crucifixion. And Judas is thinking Jesus is going to come in and he's going to take out the Romans and set up Israel as a kingdom. And, but he's not going fast enough. He's not doing it the right way. And so Judas prompts him. I guess in his mind, he might be thinking, if Jesus gets arrested, he's going to back him against the wall and he's going to fight. It might be that Judas is just disillusioned with Jesus. He's had enough. You know, what he thinks Jesus is going to do, what he thought Jesus was all about, he's not. And it's evident to him that Jesus is not going to do the things that he wants him to do. And he's thinking to himself, Jesus, you cannot defeat Rome by love. You can't defeat Rome by turning the other cheek. This is not going to work. And he becomes so disillusioned and so upset with Jesus that it's an act of vengeance on Jesus. It might be something just as simple as money. We know Judas has an issue with money. John tells us in his gospel that before they get to Jerusalem, a woman comes to Jesus and breaks a jar of expensive perfume and pours it over him, ointment. And Judas is upset about it. He says, we should have taken that. It's such a waste. We could have sold that and gotten a year's wages out of it and given the money to the poor. And John's editorial comment is, Judas really doesn't care about the poor. He just wants the money going to the treasury because he's the treasurer and he's been dipping into the till. When Judas comes to the religious leaders, they offer him, we know they offer him 30 pieces of silver. The reality is it doesn't really matter why Judas does this. Because what we do know is that somewhere in his spirit, he has decided that the way of self is better than the way of Jesus. That the things of this earth are more important to him than the things of Jesus. That the means to bringing about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is going to be accomplished best through his ideas, not through Jesus's. And so he ends up betraying his friend. And Luke wants us to know that point clearly. He says in verse 3, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. But you know, you really, you can't be betrayed by an enemy. That's what they're supposed to, they're supposed to treat you bad. But a friend, that's who can betray you. Now, as they sit around the table and Jesus has spread out, the, has given the food and, the, and the, uh, the wine and he's talked to them about what we call, you know, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And, and he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples look at each other and say, who's going to do that? 
NIV says they question among themselves which of them would do such a thing. And the New Living Translation has a, a similar thing that which of them would, would really do that to Jesus? And the reality is that the, the gospel writers seem to be indicating to us that the answer is any of them. Because if what motivates Judas is the desire for self above Jesus, that's an issue that every single one of those disciples around that table is dealing with. And the scary part of that is that that's an issue that every one of us is dealing with too. And the reality when we ask who in the world would betray Jesus, if we're honest, we have to look deep into our souls and realize that every one of us is susceptible to turning on Jesus. That's a hard thing for us to, to grasp and to get hold of because we've so conditioned ourselves to say, no, that could never happen. And granted, I'm not necessarily saying that we would sell out Jesus to the cross like Judas did. And there are certainly, there are certainly kinds and types of sins that, that are different than other sins. You know, in his book, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon, Richard John Newhouse talks about the, the moral monsters of history. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, mass murderers. And, and he talks about how you know, they are, they're different. And in a real way, they are not us and we are not them. And, and justice requires different ways of handling their, the things that they have done and the things that we do. But then he goes on to say that the honesty is the civility and the complexity alert us to the ways in which their crimes find Find a place in our hearts. And there is is something of the susceptibility of evil and sin in every one of us. And our mantra is, I would never do that. I would never do that. Judas doesn't do this. All of a sudden, one day, he's a staunch follower of Jesus. And the next day, he betrays him. It's a gradual decision making that gets him to that place. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things. Who who can understand it? Newhouse goes on to to talk about the cross. and, And he says that knowing myself and knowing the things that I do and I don't do, I don't quite understand all of it, but I've come to realize that when I... Think about Jesus on the cross. I have, to, I have to acknowledge that I was there too. And not just there standing and watching, but wielding the whip and driving the nails and thrusting the spear and putting the silver coins in my pocket. And we ask, how, how, could, how could we... Betray Jesus. How, how, why, how could we ever do that? And of course the answer is that we betray each other all the time. You know, we live in a society in which we have, cre- we have had to create ways to overcome all of the things that we do to betray each other. This, this sort of idea of mistrust is built into our culture. This came to me a number of years ago when we were, we were building our house and... You know, Cindy and I had lived in Parsonage before being here, and 
we were, our parents were both pastors, so they lived in parsonages. And so this is the first time for us. And we were very naive, didn't know a lot about what to do. And a number of you helped us. We appreciate that. Uh, we were meeting with the banker, getting things lined up and, you know, all the things you have to do about the loan, loan officer and all that stuff. And, and we had met with her five or six times, had a good relationship with her, becoming friends with her. And, and she said to us one day, so who are you going to use as, as a lawyer, legal counsel for the closing when we sign all the papers? And I don't know if I said this to her or not. I probably didn't. But I remember thinking this in my mind. Why would I need a lawyer? I mean, are you going to put things in the contract that you're not telling me about? Are you going to try to trick me? Are you going to deceive me? Uh, I can't just trust you to say, here's what we're going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and we'll agree on that. And we'll sign the papers. Why, why do I need a lawyer to look over everything? And I probably didn't say that because it would have started a not nice conversation probably, but that's the kind of culture in which we live. We live, we live in a culture that says we can't trust each other. And why is that? Because we betray each other all the time. And granted, you know, we, we categorize sins and, and that's, that's okay. You know, it's good that none of us are trafficking in human beings or, you know, or mass murderers or trying to carry a bomb onto a plane or suborning perjury or, you know, taking down... You know, multinational companies. And for something in us wants to say, if I'm not doing those heinous things, then I'm not that bad. But the reality is, we gossip, we are jealous and envious, and we say things to each other that are hurtful. And when we say it, we mean to hurt each other. And we are divisive. And we stretch the truth to protect ourselves. And sometimes we fudge on our taxes. We do all kinds of things to betray one another. And the scriptures tell us that the way we treat each other is the way we treat God. And we live in this world in which we try to minimize our sin and make ourselves feel better. But the reality is we all are susceptible to sin. We try to deny that. You know, again, society trains us that too. What does the insurance company tell you? If you have an automobile accident, two of the first things you do, call the police and admit nothing. Right? Because if you admit something, you're going to be held liable for it. And something in our minds tells us that even with God, if we don't admit it, we're not going to be held responsible for it. And something in us wants to believe that we sort of, I think in the church, we don't help this because we send the message and we sort of outgrow sin. You know, part of our tradition in talking about sanctification and holiness and things is that we've, we've sent a subtle message that we outgrow needing to deal with sin. That when you're really mature, then you just sort of put sin on the back burner. You don't even have to think about it anymore. And it creates an atmosphere in the church where we don't want to talk about it. Because the reality is we all know that we still wrestle with it. But if the, if the image we're supposed to portray is that we don't wrestle with it, then how do you talk about it? 
And I've come to the conclusion that what we need to do is to have sort of a 12-step mindset. That when we come together and worship every Sunday, we all stand up and say, Hi, I'm Wes and I'm a sinner. And not just that I used to sin and now I don't deal with that anymore, but I still wrestle with sin. And I'm still susceptible to turning my back on the ways of God. I'm still, I still wrestle with wanting to go my own way instead of God's way. I think that's what Christ really was intending for the church to be. To acknowledge our sin. To admit the truth. Because what I'm discovering is that until, until we acknowledge our susceptibility to evil, we can never really experience the power of the cross. In his first epistle, the Apostle John writes these words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he goes back. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. See, if we, if we say, I don't wrestle with sin, I'm really past that. Any sin I have, it's, just, it's really pretty minuscule. If we think we're past that, that's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign that we're calling God a liar. Because Christ comes into this world and goes to the cross because we sin. And we couldn't do anything about our sin. And so he does something about it. And if we say, I don't mess with, sin's not a part of my life anymore. I don't have to worry about sin. I don't think about sin. Sin's not, I don't, I'm not susceptible to sin. We're in essence saying, I don't need the cross. But God has told us over and over again, we can't survive without the cross. And in essence, we're calling him a liar. You see, this passage is not declaring, be as much like Jesus as you can. This passage is declaring, you do realize how much like Judas you are. the, The passage isn't saying, when people turn on you, you ought to forgive them, even though we should do that. This passage is saying, unless you will acknowledge how often you turn on Christ, you can never know his forgiveness. Because it's only as we acknowledge our sin that we embrace the cross. Because Jesus didn't come to die because we're just a little bit bad. It just need a little bit of a nudge to get us into the good category. He came and died because we are sinful, evil people without him. The heart is deceitful. And that's why Jesus comes and dies on the cross. We hear that and we're thinking, all right, if I acknowledge it, it's just so overwhelming. And that's why we turn back to the cross. Because when we feel a sense of despair about our sinfulness, that's when we realize that the cross meets us with love and forgiveness. Matthew 27 tells the story of Judas in a little more detail than Luke gives us. And Matthew says that at some point Judas realizes what he's done. And the shame and the guilt and the remorse of that are so heavy upon him that he takes his own life. 
And what a great tragedy it is, not only that he betrayed Jesus, but that he then ended his life and that he wasn't able to hear the words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And those are words directed not just at the Roman soldiers, not just at Pilate, not just at the religious leaders, but also at Judas. Because if Judas can't be forgiven, then the cross is a sham. If Judas isn't, wouldn't, isn't offered forgiveness, the cross is a sham. And you and I, those words are spoken to us too. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And even though it was our sin that made the cross necessary, it is the cross that is the remedy and the solution to our sin. In John's description of the Last Supper, he tells us that when Jesus and his disciples enter the the upper room and they get settled, that Jesus takes out a towel and a basin and he goes around and begins to wash the feet of every one of the disciples. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, Oh, no, no, Lord, I don't want you washing my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, You don't have any place with me. And it strikes me that that's an apt analogy to what we're talking about today. That if we don't come to the place of acknowledging and admitting that our hearts are dirty. And the only way they can be cleaned is by Christ. We will never understand and experience what the cross is all about. We'll never know the fullness of life and joy that God created us to know. And so as you think about your life, maybe there's a besetting sin that just keeps dogging you over and over and over again. And you want to deny it. You want to act like it's not a problem. You want to let it go. And and just in the midst of that, Hear Christ calling from the cross, Father, forgive them. And lay it at his feet. And know the joy and the power of his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we need you. We pray that you will help us to be honest with ourselves and with you and with each other because we want to know the power of the cross in our lives every day. We pray this through Christ. Amen.